Good evening, Dharma friends. Can you hear me? That works. So tonight we continue to explore practicing with Satipatthana. So we're practicing one way to think about what we're doing here Uh, what ceremony we are engaged in, what ceremony are we doing, is to think that we're practicing the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya. It's good to um, set an intention every day. You know, today I will practice the Eightfold Path. I will work on strengthening my path factors because that is the way to freedom, to the elimination of stress. So we are practicing Sila Samadhi Panya. We know uh, Sila we are practicing is right speech and together we have taken a vow of silence, right action. We are training and keeping the precepts, the five precepts or the eight precepts, right livelihood that might apply to our yogi jobs. It's definitely for the benefit of all as we work together to get that done. The practice of meditation, you could say, and on this retreat, we're particularly practicing the samadhi elements of the Eightfold Path. We are practicing right effort and right mindfulness and right concentration. Guided, of course, all of it guided, of course, by right view, and right thought or intention. So within, so uh, I'm going to talk tonight about um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which uh, definitely is about the practice of the samadhi elements of the Eightfold Path. That is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, guided by right view. So the seven awakening factors, that's what they're called. They are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And why are they called the awakening factors? Why are they called that? This is what the suttas say about that. Then a certain monk approached the Buddha. Having approached the Blessed One, he saluted him and sat down at one side. Venerable Sir, awakening factor, awakening factor. In what way, Venerable Sir, are they called awakening factor? Monk, bhikkhu, they bring about awakening. Therefore, they are called awakening factors. Pretty straightforward. Here's another really good one. 
Then a certain Biko approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? Bhikkhus, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. Venerable Sir, it is said, wise and alert, wise and alert. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called wise and alert? Bhikkhus, it is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of awakening that one is called wise and alert. What seven? Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline towards Nibbana. So that is our ceremony. But you might be thinking, awakening? Do I want to be awakened? Enlightenment? Is this an awakening ceremony? Is that what I'm doing here? This is what Gil Fransdahl says about that. If we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often comes from a non-discursive part of the heart and mind. Craving and clinging are often tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy, while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long contemplative periods that people discover what they most want to base their lives on. It's also important to respect both ourselves and our aspirations. It is easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the search for them. Believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspiration, it is far better to try and fail than to never try. So I'm always drawn to this thought or the distinction between craving and clinging and aspiration. And just, that's exactly what is unfolding for us all here, is a deeper understanding of um, an aspiration that's not based on craving and clinging. Or sometimes it might be. I think that, you know, as we go through our time together, we can feel both. But there is a deeper part of the path, that uh, lawful unfolding of the path, that it doesn't matter why we came here, that the desire for deliverance, the desire for awakening, just manifests naturally out of the practice. And it doesn't have anything to do with um, greed, hatred, and delusion. 
It has to do with the unfolding of our spiritual journey. So it's said that the seven uh, awakening factors both are sequential and also uh, syncretic. So they develop each from each other, and I'll go through those, but they also, in some times of our practice, are um, all exist within our heart minds at the same time. It is said that in the suttas that the awakening factors are contrasted against the five hindrances. In fact, they're called anti-hindrances. Anti-hindrances. The awakening factors emerge in sequence, each serving as a condition for the next, as shown in this sutta. Bhikkhu Bodhi summarizes the progress of the awakening factors. All those Arahant Buddhas of the past attain to supreme enlightenment by abandoning the five hindrances, the defilements of mind which weaken understanding, and have firmly established the four foundations of mindfulness in their minds and realize the seven factors of awakening as they really are. So I'm talking to your intuitive awareness right now. So please just settle back and um, I'm going to put a little table of the seven factors on the board so don't think you have to remember them all. I'll put it up for a couple days so you can take a look at it. So the seven factors. And it's said that there's two two tasks that we want to do essentially with all of the mental objects in our mind in our Satipatthana practice. So if there's something wholesome in our mind, like the seven factors, we want to know if any one of them is present. And if it is present, we want to know the condition that leads to further development and perfection of it. And if any one of the seven factors is not present, we want to know the conditions that lead to its arising. And we do that not, I mean, we can have a finger pointing. I'm going to be the finger pointing tonight, but this is for you to, for all of us, to see directly with our mindfulness, with our practice. We can't think about these things too much. In fact, if we think about them, we're probably preventing them from arising. And any one of these seven factors, I'm sure some of the other teachers might actually, um, each one of them deserves their own PhD dissertation. <laughs> so I'm just going to give uh, an overview tonight and hope, uh, hopefully some of the um, other teachers will give talks specifically on each of them. So the first one is mindfulness. And we love our mindfulness. It is thought to have four qualities. Mindfulness has four qualities. 
The first is non-forgetting. And that's, you know, a force in our minds. When uh, the seven factors are present, um, it's, it's almost like the force has really gotten strong and we can just feel it working. And it's not that uh, mindfulness doesn't slip off the object. It could absolutely slip off the object. But it feels like it's, there's some kind of post that's tied and it will come back to the object and, uh, you know, quickly. It is like a signpost when mindfulness is samasati, right mindfulness. It's said that when the momentum is developed, it works like a boomerang. Even if we're distracted, the mind naturally rebounds to the state of awareness. It'll get taken away by something and then it'll come back. And I'm sure you've seen this in your own minds as you're practicing. And it's good to notice that. We want to notice these qualities of mindfulness. The second quality of the four is presence of mind. And that is um, thought to be face to face with the object instead of like seeing it off to the side. It's like having um, the object of our mindfulness right in front of us. The third of the four qualities of mindfulness is remembering. Now, I thought, well, isn't that the same as not forgetting? (laughs) Which is the first dimension. But actually, this is one of my very favorite ones. And this is a natural, a very natural assessment of uh, looking for wholesome and unwholesome motivations for what are in the mind or intentions of what is in the mind. Is this mental object, is the um, intention behind it or the foundation based on one of the five hindrances? Is it based on greed, hatred, and delusion? Or is it based on one of the Brahma Viharas? Is it something wholesome? Is it one of the paramis? Is it a wholesome motivation? And oftentimes we have more than one intention in the mind. So, you know, we can often see two things happening at the same time. There's a name for um, these two, uh, two mental factors called guardians of the world. And um, I'm sure many of us are having them. They are Hiri and Otapa. I love Hiri and Otapa, guardians of the world. They're like the Avengers. They're watching out for us. We have our own internal force of the Avengers. And they are, the names are kind of dramatic and sometimes they feel dramatic and sometimes not so dramatic. And they are moral shame and fear of wrongdoing. And um, Sometimes we can go for a few days in intensive practice like this, just remembering all the bad things that we have done. I don't know if any of you are feeling that. 
like just point after point. Like when I was in seventh grade, I was with that group of girls that was just teasing that one outsider terribly. And then, you know, you can just make a list of things and you just have a sense of um, shame and remorse that is not, you know, it's not guilt. It's actually not based on, um, you know, how we think that we should be. It's just an acknowledgement of having done harm in the world. And it's actually quite a wholesome, quite a wholesome quality. And sometimes we just have to go through a few days of remembering that. And then the other one is um, fear of wrongdoing, which is really a beautiful, a beautiful quality. And that can arise too when, um, you know, as part of one of the uh, dimensions or four qualities of mindfulness of you know, just wanting to make sure that we are as innocuous as we can be in the world. And then, if we do transgress, if we do, you know, act out from just an overwhelm of the hindrances or some of our purification, we just start again. We just realize this is how it is. And we start again. So, not forgetting presence of mind, remembering, and then close association with the wise. This is how we strengthen our mindfulness. This is how we create the conditions for it to be samasati for its natural unfolding. And guess what? You guys have all, we have all, because of past excellent karma, created the conditions for us all to be together. I know I've said a few times that I want to smudge myself on all of you. And by that I mean that, you know, there must have been some excellent Uh, karma, good karma, and excellent wisdom that all brought you here. It wasn't easy to do. I'm sure you had to arrange your lives, and, you know, many of you flew all the way from Europe or other parts of the world. Thank you so much for taking such care to do that. You had to arrange your lives. It's a big deal to come here for six weeks or three, three months. And you came to have close association with wisdom. Just the energetic field. You know, I'm humbled to think who have sat on who has sat on this stage. It's amazing. So that is mindfulness. And mindfulness is what helps balance the other six faculties. We have three faculties that are arousing or um, uplifting and three factors that are calming. And mindfulness um, helps us see where our enlightenment factors are strong and balanced and where they might need some tweaking against each other.
So here is one, um, before I get on to the first enlivening factor, investigation, I love this, um, this little definition or description of sati by Analyo, you know, one of our wonderful monk practitioner scholars. And he says this about sati, about mindfulness. As a mental quality, sati represents the deliberate cultivation and a qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stage of the perception process. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. It deconditions how we, uh, inherent biases, it deconditions our automatic reactions that, you know, are based on view in our minds. He goes on to say, Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana as an ingenious middle way which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. That's one interpretation of the middle way, that sati holds experiences between suppression and indulgence, between denial and obsession. It just holds it in the middle to see it clearly. So that's the first enlightenment factor, our mindfulness. And then with mindfulness, uh, when we have samasati, mindfulness in our mind with some level of stability, investigation naturally arises. Investigation, the discrimination of states, uh, states, dhamma, vikaya. It's been translated in various ways as discrimination of states or knowing what's in the mind, investigation of truth or discerning the dhamma. You could think of it as kind of light, like a uh, clarity or a light shined on an object to see it, to see it more clearly. And how important is investigation? What did the suttas say about the enlightenment factor of investigation? So there's uh, one story. It's actually um, from the suttas about, sutta stories about this one king who was actually a Greek king who lived in what is present day um, Afghanistan right now. His name was King Melinda. And this is a story that dates back to, back to about 100 BCE, which was probably about four or 500 years after the Buddha lived. And uh, there's a story about this king. He was really sharp and really loved to engage with scholars. And back in those days, most of the scholars were monks and monastics. So there was this one monastic um, named Nagasena. I think that's how you say it, Nagasenta. 
So in one account, there was a dialogue between Nagasenta and this great king, Melinda, King Melinda. And the king asked um, Nagasena, how many factors of enlightenment does one actually awaken? How many does it take to actually become enlightened of these seven factors? And Nagasena replied that of the factors of enlightenment, um, the factors of awakening is by means of just one. That's the factor of investigation of dhammas. So the king says, then why does the Buddha talk about seven factors of awakening if it only takes one? And Nagasena says, does the sword placed in its sheath and not grasp in the hand succeed in cutting what leads, needs to be cut? In exactly the same way, your majesty, one cannot awaken by means of the awakening factor of dharma investigation without the other six awakening factors. So they're the ones that um, allow investigation to be present. So what are the dimensions of investigation? What are some of its component parts? One is like the um, mindfulness. It also is, is uh, interested in what is wholesome and what is not, what is skillful and what is not. Another dimension of investigation, and this, you know, this we are holding in our minds. You can ask, is, are these dimensions of investigation in our mind as we practice? Um, and they are naturally arising. They're naturally arising. And actually a bit of reflection on them also might bring them to the forefront of our awareness. The second dimension is recognizing habit patterns of suffering in our minds. And, um, you know, definitely not getting into the story of it, but just recognizing a habit pattern. And maybe just a quick investigation. Is this physiological? Okay, I'm going to be very, uh, I'm going to say this as trigger warning, trigger warning. (laughs) Sometimes what we're experiencing can actually be very hormonal. Sometimes if we're, you know, depending on our cycles and just what's happening with these uh, male and female and our transgender relative bodies, there can be physiological elements that impact how we think and what's going on with us. And it's excellent to know that, like, yeah, that's hormones right there acting. Right? It kind of cuts it off a little bit. Or we know that it's not based on you know, that it's not inherent to us. It's not on our three-by-five card in heaven that says who we are. And maybe it's psychological, and just to know, that's psychological. Oh, that's historical. Oh, that's epigenetic. And not with a lot of investigation, just to recognize the habit patterns and what might be fueling some of them. Another dimension of investigation, I love this one, is seeing the personality as not self. How can that be? How can the personality not be self? We all have these great personalities. And, um, you know, in the Buddhist commentaries, I'm sure many of you have heard this and have explored it. In the Buddhist commentaries, there's three basic personality types. So you can figure out which personality type we all are, right? Right? 
I know which kind I am. <laughs> and this helps us see personality as not self, to see these basic um, habit patterns and forces working in us. The first personality type is the greedy or desirous type. And these all three types actually have their positive and ne- negative qualities to them. So there's the greedy type that walks into a room and says, okay, what do I want in this room? What do I want? It sees what it likes and it wants what it sees. Through wisdom, this quality is transformed into faith and devotion. So the greedy and desirous type through wisdom and practice when we water the seeds of our positive qualities and we uproot all of those habits of mind based on greed, hatred, and delusion, this greedy or desirous type turns into faith and devotion. The second type is the aversion types, the ill will types. And typically, they'll walk into a room and they'll see what's wrong with it. You'll walk into the dining room, you'll see what's wrong with it. You'll see what lunch is on the table and you'll see what's wrong with it. And then with some wisdom, when there's clear seeing, this aversion transforms into discriminating intelligence. Actually, some of the most um, aversive people are the smartest and most... um, just insightful or discriminating about certain conditions. They really see clearly what's at work in that moment. It is so brilliant to see that, that transformation. And then the third type is the deluded type. And then, you know, we just don't notice much of anything at all. I think I am a deluded type. But I have a lot of faith and devotion too, so maybe I'm greedy and deluded. I'm sure we all have all of these types, right? It's kind of like your main one and the one that comes second and third. And the deluded type, you know, I can be at work and all of this drama could be going on and I have no idea what's going on. And someone will tell me, didn't you know this was all going on? And it's like, no, I had no idea this was all going on. So we're just not really seeing all of the forces at work. But um, in its enlightened aspect, this delusion transforms into great equanimity, right? It's like, it's okay, bring it all. It doesn't matter. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. I'm only on the second one, investigation. So you can think about these personalities that seem like such, such so personal and so uh, us to think about how they are really informed by, you know, these bigger forces that are at work in all of us. It's not perso- personal. Another way to... Um, work with investigation is to um, explore the processes of body and mind. To just see 
more closely. Um, actually, you know, one of the important um, meditations in uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is just mindfulness of, you know, what is happening with these bodies of ours. Just watching as they slowly just stop working. And then another way to work with investigation is to explore the nature of thoughts, thoughts themselves. This is what uh, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche says about that. When a rainbow appears, we see many different colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It is simply... It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. Is anyone having, being tormented by thoughts? (laughs) It's crazy. Why do we believe them? They're empty. They're just like little thought bubbles across our awareness. And they're just driving us here and there. I actually really love one sutta of the, um, the Vipalasa Sutta, just about the distortions of mind. And I hope to give a talk about it. And that has really let me see that, you know, on retreat it's easier to see just how empty and um, distorted our thoughts are, but even out in the world, I don't, you know, many times I don't believe what I think. I'll, I'll have a thought and I go, oh yeah, I don't believe that. And then at times when I, um, you know, I'm challenged to let go of a thought, it's easier to let go of it, knowing just the deluded nature of them. So it's really useful to investigate that. So what do we do with thoughts and all of this mental qualities and investigation while we're practicing. Um, So when when unwholesome thoughts are in the mind, we want to increase our vigilance. You know, maybe just really pay a little bit of closer attention when unwholesome thoughts are in the mind. And then when wholesome thoughts are in the mind, we can relax our attention and don't over-investigate. That might be one way to think about how much energy to put into what's happening in the moment, which takes us to our next enlightenment factor, energy. So this is what it says. Energy has the power to do. So this is what the sutta says. And one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it Tireless energy is aroused. That, this is how investigation uh, is the condition for energy to arise. And one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, 
tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless energy is aroused, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused and one develops it and by developing it, it comes to fulfillment. So this is the energy enlightenment factor or awakening factor. And it's related to putting forth effort. And it's interesting, um, this enlightenment factor of energy, it can feel almost like it's effortless, like that we have some momentum. I'm sure you've felt that at times. This feeling of momentum of uh, just being present with what is, with a sense of relaxation and not a lot of striving. And it's, I think it's really important to see the difference between this wholesome uh, momentum or energy that arises out of the seven factors and, and out of practice itself compared to a striving of wanting something to be. It's a very relaxed momentum of, of uh, practice where, you know, intentions are seeing and just being with what is happening in this moment, whatever is most predominant, without a lot of striving at all. There's not a lot of clinging or actually a lot of us there at all. It's just, you can feel how it is happening all by itself. What are the dimensions of the energy enlightenment factor? One is strength. Virya manifest as strength. And the suttas say, and what is the faculty of strength? Here the noble disciple dwells as one who has produced strength for the sake of abandoning unskillful dhammas and arousing skillful dhammas. One is firm of steady valor, unrelinquishing uh, their purpose with regard to skillful dhammas. So yeah, that's right effort too, right? The four right efforts. You know, if there are wholesome qualities in the mind, to know that wholesome qualities in the mind and to uh, know that they're there and to uh, know what will continue to uh, keep them there. And if wholesome qualities are not in the mind, to know what will cause them to arise and continue. And if there are unwholesome qualities in the mind, to know that they're there and to know how to relinquish them. And if they're not there, uh, to know how to keep them from arising. Right effort. So that's the strength factor. Another dimension of the energy um, enlightenment factor is courage. I love this one. It's like, you know, it's almost like feeling the earth element of our existence. It's like, yeah, bring it. Which could be an element of equanimity as well but that there is a courage of just knowing I can handle this. I have the strength to handle what is arising. I can go forward. There's no fear in the mind. Sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, in response to 
difficult things in the mind, the hindrances will arise. Sometimes we'll get really sleepy and, and, and slothful just not to see clearly something that is uncomfortable in the mind. Or sometimes we'll get aversive or we'll be greedy for something else, for some entertainment, for something that we don't want to see. And this element of energy as an enlightenment factor has the courage to just say, yeah, I'm here, I can see it. I have the strength and the courage to see it. I think we have to be careful that um, that we aren't over-efforting. You know, that's one of the wholesome um, aspects of mindfulness is that it tries to balance the enlightenment factors. And sometimes um, effort or energy can get really strong and get unbalanced with the calming factors. I get this a lot. I'm kind of an energetic, exuberant type, I guess. And uh, I remember being on this retreat and just sitting where you guys are sitting. And I was ringing, you know, I, I, w- I had signed up for a bell ringing. And I was walking around the compound uh, ringing the bell. And in my mind, I was sending everyone metta. You know, just, oh, may you be happy, may you be safe. But in my mind, I was screaming it. May you be happy. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I think I'm over... I think I've got a lot of energy going on. (laughs) That was one way where my energy was a little out of balance. I think I told Joseph that, and he said, ah, you should take a walk in the woods. (laughs) So how can we get energy to arise? If energy is low, what are some reflections that might... um, that might help energy naturally arise, a wholesome energy that isn't based on striving and wanting. So there are a few reflections that we can do that will kick up the spiritual urgency. We like our spiritual urgency. One is a reflection on the preciousness of the current circumstances. Oh my gosh. We're at the mothership. We're at the mothership of Western Theravada mindfulness. This is the mothership. I'm sorry, I just love this place. And we can reflect on that, the preciousness of our current situation. Everything has been set up. You know, there's a whole staff of people for the last 40 years and a board and benefactors who have been figuring out how to make this experience the best for all of the retreatants to make this the perfect place for the unfolding of this lawful process of awakening. They put a lot of energy into it. And just reflect on that. Just how, you know, single rooms and wholesome food and every night hearing the Dhamma. Wow, does it get any better? Another reflection that arouses energy is to reflect on death. I taught, a, I was invited to teach a death retreat um, a couple months ago with two wonderful teachers who have been teaching it for a long time. 
And wow, right now I feel like I'm, I'm in a death field still. And it's very, I can see how important it is. It's an interesting feeling. It's a feeling of a little bit of fear and spiritual urgency, right? That's where it's going for all of us. That's not a mistake. So to reflect on that. You know, we're either in the front of the line or the back of the line, but we're all in line. Another good reflection to um, develop energy is to think about our, all of our, our possessions and what we try to accumulate. What is the only thing that we will not lose? Our karma, right? It's really the only thing we take with us. It's the only thing. And then reflecting on the uh, defects of samsara. But I think we're all opening to, all opening to dukkha. And I'm sure we will have a talk on that soon. And then from the energy applied to the work of mental purification, right effort and right energy, knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome, and doing this, um, this work of purification, joy and rapture arises. Joy and rapture arises. And um, there's said to be five grades of rapture, five types of rapture. Minor rapture, momentary, wave-like or showering rapture, uplifting and pervading rapture. This is uh, from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It is not like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you might say, oh, this place is terrible, but actually it's not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. We say, pulling out the weeds, we give nourishment to the plant. We pull the weeds and bury them near the plant to give it nourishment. So even though you have difficulty in your practice, even though you have some waves while you are sitting, these waves themselves will help you. So you should not be bothered by your mind. You should rather be grateful for the weeds because eventually they will enrich your practice. The weeds become the fertilizer for the positive qualities. To see them as that, every time you notice oh, that is a, uh, uh, the intention behind that thought is pretty unwholesome. But if you see it clearly, uh, you know, that can become part of our fertilizer for our positive qualities of, of uh, relinquishing. What strengthens rapture? What strengthens joy in the mind? To know that you have joy. It's so interesting. I've seen, you know, many yogis and I've seen joy in your mind when you come in. And I don't know if you guys see it. Just to know that there is joy in the mind. It's really important to know. You tell yourself little jokes and just the most absurd things are just pretty funny. I'm sure many of you have felt that. So what strengthens rapture? To reflect on the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha. I love the Buddha. 
You know, I'm very happily engaged. I have a wonderful fiancé, and he's a conditioned thing, you know? (laughs) Isn't that bad to say? I love him. But he's conditioned. So he's not really going to, you know, that's the key to having a successful relationship is to have pretty low expectations. (laughs) They're conditioned. They're not going to, you know, fix that parent thing or get us enlightened. But the Buddha, now that. (laughs) Reflect on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three jewels. Contemplating our sila. You know, that's why sila samadhi panya, why sila is so important. It is the foundation for awakening. And, you know, even you might think, how much sila do I have? If you're here, you've got some good sila or you have some good karma because you're here. Reflect on your sila. Reflect on your acts of generosity. It really can brighten the mind and make you really happy. Remembering your generosity. Remembering your sila and generosity. Uh, And I love this. The recommendation is to do the little reflection to reflect on that and then say to yourself, sadhu, 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 well done. You know, I have had the experience of sitting in retreat in intensive practice where a thought wouldn't clear until I realized it wanted me to say, sadhu, 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 Bonnie, you did a good thing. And as soon as I realized it and said, yeah, that was a good thing, it was able to pass. It's amazing how sometimes if you don't acknowledge the good stuff, it can uh, stay there too. You know, this is an interesting one. Reflect on the devas. There's devas on this land. There are uh, tree sprites and helper spirits. They're out there. You might call them in. And then with this rapture or joy, um, dharma happiness and the next awakening factor of calm uh, unfolds and naturally unfolds. And these are the positive effects of the path, calm. And you know, to say about rapture and joy, that's known as unworldly pleasure, right? Unworldly pleasure. And it's a pleasure that we can have that's not based on anything external. And it's actually quite a wholesome pleasure. Oftentimes, you know, the Buddha would walk by the monastics, the monks, and they'd be gossiping or something, and he'd say, why don't you just go rest in jhana? (laughs) You know, why don't you go rest in joy? So calm. With the refinement of rapture in the body uh, and joy, the mind calms down. And the, la- the enlightenment factor of tranquility or relaxation. This is really important. Tranquility or relaxation arises. This is what the suttas say. What, venerable one, is the reward of blessings of wholesome morality, freedom from remorse, Ananda, and of freedom from remorse, Joy, Ananda. And what is the reward and blessings of joy? Rapture, Ananda. And of rapture, tranquility, Ananda. 
That's what the Buddha said. Calm tranquility, composure or serenity. It could manifest as any one of these things. And we want to know it, right? We want to really savor it. Um, The very brilliant Sabra asked the question the other day, what about sinking into it or knowing it with mindfulness? And this is an excellent one because these alignment factors, we so want to sink into them because they are just so... They can be, you know, um, we can feel that they're there in a weak way and sometimes they're really strong and they're very exquisite. But we really want to hold them with our mindfulness. We want to see the qualities of them. We want to savor them with our mindfulness and know, know what they're like. Because if we can do that, sometimes when we need them, we're even able to make resolves and, you know, help them get there. You know, if we have a lot of energy... Uh, energy enlightenment factor, we can remember calm and say, may calm arise and do a little bit of balancing so we're not so jagged out there. And I get very exuberant sometimes. My joy gets off the, it's like, and it's like, okay, calm down, may calm arise, may calm arise. So calm, tranquility, serenity, relaxation, composure. How do we develop this? How do we develop more calm? By uh, mindfulness of breathing, by coming back to an anchor. We might try to do body scans, just body scans for relaxation at the beginning or the ending of sits. Settling back into experience. And just notice, the other day I saw uh, an Utejaniya quote about note, trying, 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 and it blew my mind. Just the idea that we can note trying, knowing what the attitude of the mind is, is so important. And seeing how subtly or not so subtly, there's that trying there, trying, trying, trying. Little reflections were advised to do little reflections like when walking, just walk. When eating, just walk. I mean, when eating, just eat. (laughs) When giving a Dharma talk, just give a Dharma talk. (laughs) When giving a Dharma talk, just give a Dharma talk. It's an hour of my life, right? How could it be so bad? Or notice not calm, notice rushing. The Buddha said, these two qualities have a share in clear knowing. Which two? Tranquility, shamatha, and insight of vipassana. When tranquility is developed, what purpose does it serve? The mind is developed, and when the mind is developed, what purpose does it serve? Passion is abandoned. When insight is developed, what purpose does it serve? Discernment is developed, and when discernment is developed, what purpose does it serve? Ignorance is abandoned. That's a wonderful, that is a wonderful promise to us. And then the next is concentration. The enlightenment factor of concentration, samadhi. Uh, its characteristics or dimensions. Actually, there's two types of samadhi. There's single-pointed samadhi, and then there is um, 
access concentration or meditative states of concentration where you're very concentrated, but you can uh, attend to things that are changing in the moment rather than to a fixed subject. The fixed object meditation is, you know, uh, classic jhana practice. And jhanas are very blissful. They're very blissful. And, you know, the purpose of them is to lead to discriminating awareness to have insight for liberation. They, in and of themselves, will not lead to liberation. Ways to arouse concentration. Know when it's present and it's not present. If the concentration awakening factor is present in one, he, she, or they know, there is the concentration awakening factor in me. If the concentration awakening factor is not present in one, he, she, or they know, there is no concentration awakening factor in me. One knows how the unarisen factor can arise and how the arisen factor can be perfected by development to just know what is going on in the mind. One way to, um, to really stoke concentration is to, again, another um, aspect of sila. It's the bliss of blamelessness. Don't you love that? The bliss of blamelessness. Knowing that you did everything that you could in a positive way, even though everything might have turned out wrong. Um, and then finally, the um, seventh enlightenment factor is equanimity. And this factor looks on everything. Uh, it, it, it's developed out of a concentrated mind. Uh, it, one could say that the whole path rests on the maturing of this powerful enlightenment factor, equanimity. It's the, effect, the factor that's actually right there before before a glimpse of awakening. And what are the dimensions of it that it's not moved by the vicissitudes? This is the nature of samsara. It's not personal. And they're out there, loss and gain, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. They are out there and they're not personal. That is the nature of conditioned experience. And to be able to hold all of that without taking it personally. To know the impersonality, is that a word? The not personalness of those is an element of equanimity. To use it as a divine abode. The third Zen ancestor said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both apt absent, when attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. How do we develop equanimity? We forego attachment. I love this quote by Ajahn Chah. At one point, the Thai master, Ajahn Chah, held up a cup in front of a group of his students. And he said, the best way to relate to this cup is as if it is already broken. 
when we use it and take care of it, we use it and take care of it, but we remain unattached because we know it is subject to change. The cup is already broken. And we can still love it in its manifestation at this moment. But it is absolutely its nature is to change. This is what uh, one of our beloved teachers, Sharon Salzberg, says about equanimity. This is the very nature of life. No one in this world experiences only pleasure and no pain, and no one experiences only gain and no loss. When we open to this truth, we discover that there is no need to hold on or to push away. Rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, we can find a sense of security in being able to meet what is actually happening. This is allowing for the mystery of things, not judging, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can receive whatever is happening whenever it is. This acceptance is the source of our safety and confidence. So those are the seven factors. They uh, unfold based on each other and then also exist simultaneously. And they are part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. This is the framework of the practice that we're doing. So the Buddha said, hey, I'm seeing these in my mind. You will see these in your mind. So let's practice with these beautiful, beautiful qualities as they naturally unfold. Let's sit for a minute. May the positive energies of our practice be for the benefit of all beings in all directions, including ourselves.